welcome to the Sean L. Show, intimate conversations about music, sex, and life in New York City. My guest today is one of the most famous gay men of the year 2000. He was catapulted into being a cultural icon after appearing on the ninth season of MTV's hit show, The Real World in New Orleans. Not only was he cute with Southern charm, he was dating a man in the military who under our nation's don't ask, don't tell policy at that time had to have his identity hidden anytime he appeared on screen. The added controversy thrust Danny into the national spotlight even more as a gay player political activist at just 22 years old. Now, having recently tested positive for HIV, Danny is stepping back into the activist role to help spread awareness about HIV and U equals U. Welcome to the podcast, Danny. It's good to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me, Sean. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first things first, how are you doing? Um, because we're, I hate to reuse the word that we're all sick of, but we're living in these unprecedented times. How are you doing? Yeah, you know what? I hate that term because yeah. I think these times are kind of precedented. You I know, you're right. I understand. A lot of the same dumb shit, and it's pretty predictable, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we keep doing the same dumb shit. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. That is a really good point, but we're not paying attention and learning from the precedents, at least not all of us, unfortunately. Not being present, and some of us are trapped in a cult, but. Moving on, Sean. <laughs> right, exactly. So I just want to, um, so my metadata tells me that half of my audience is going to be so psyched to hear from you and is going to remember you from the real world. And then the other half are going to be too young. And for those kids that listen in, I want to just explain what the time was like culturally in 2000, because it is so different from what we have now there was no kardashians uh we just had survivor that was brand new Uh, before survivor it was only the real world on tv for reality shows um and there was no social media so at that time mtv was it right mtv is it you know what's weird sean is today it just popped in my head to think i wonder you know I don't think many people watch MTV anymore, but I was thinking like, I I wonder what MTV's peak viewership was versus like what it is now. And I, you know, it was easy to dig up information that millennials really tapered off and most, and and many don't watch or know of MTV anymore. But at the time, so MTV, just so you know, peaked in, in, I think it was 99. Wow. So right at that time when you were on. It, It generally had a million viewers at any given time tuning in. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and, and for added relevance in, uh, real world was like 90% of MTV's budget at that time. And M- MTV was huge. MTV, anything cultural music related was at least for the mainstream was generally siphoned through MTV. And a lot of it was not mainstream either. You know, it's cool. MTV's, uh, peak moment was actually Kurt Cobain's death. Wow. It's interesting. Wow. Yeah, because that's where you would want to go for that news, I guess. That was the only place to go for that news. Yeah. And and definitely at that time, too, when you were on The Real World, I remember I would watch those episodes of you guys on The Real World a hundred times. It's just because, like, now we use our wasted time on Instagram, but it's like we 
our generation would leave MTV on all day. And so they would replay Real World a million times. And even though you'd already seen it, you just left it on in the background as if it was music or company or something. Um, but everyone I know at that time did that. So uh, it just uh, added to the microscope on you. Absolutely. So at the time, a key thing to remember was the internet was new. Yeah. Uh, very few people had the internet. Most of the people on college campuses still going into the late 90s, early 2000s. Yep. It's kind of when, you know, the mainstream started getting their hands on the internet, but it was still pretty new. So for a long time, you didn't have really any way to see outside of your little bubble of a world. Whatever town you lived in, you were trapped in that reality. Right. MTV gave us the first opportunity through the real world and, and through a lot of MTV content to see outside of our little bubbles. Yes. On a regular basis. So, so you leave the real, real, real world on because you wanted to, you sort of subconsciously wanted to be part of that world. You wanted to, them to be your roommates. Exactly. In big major cities. In their world and all these different people. What people probably don't understand now is that that show was an educational show. It it was a today we would call a show like that a docu series more than a reality show. It became a reality show later on. But when you were on it and the preceding cast, it was more of a docu series um, wow. that really educated about different people that were in the world. Sean, I got to say, you are the, I, I kid you not, you're the very first person to frame it in that way to me, but you're absolutely right. I'm always trying to explain to people who, you know, now most people think of the real world, if they think of it at all, if they know it, young people probably don't even know it, but uh, it, exactly, you think of it as like trashy reality TV, but you're right. right, there was there was a point up until around the time that mine happened where it shifted. Yes. That's because for the first time up into that point, MTV was, or sorry, not MTV, but uh, they're synonymous in my head. The real world was the only reality television on television. Right. And it, for the first time, as my season aired, Survivor started. Yes. Yep. And after Survivor, it was like a flood of new reality shows. So the real world's format completely changed to compete with that. And it turned more into competition, fighting, sex, drama, dumb shit. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Before that, you're right. It was teaching us about different people, about human interaction, about respect, yep. about beliefs, where people got their beliefs. Yep. And it exposed America to a lot for the very first time in many ways. Yeah. I think that the season right after yours is the one that started to get a little trashy, but it was still poignant because it was back to New York and 9-11 happened during their filming. So that season was a little bit poignant, but that was sort of the beginning of of the end. And then after that, I think was Vegas, I think, if I'm remembering, and it was all downhill from there. I don't even know, Sean. I have to admit that after I was on it, it kind of killed the magic. It's kind of like, once you realize Oz is just the wizard pulling levers, you're like, oh. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. I no longer followed it after that. Yeah. Uh, But... I think you're probably right. Yeah. (laughs) I think Chicago was in there somewhere, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, you're right. Yeah. Um, so just going back to Don't Ask, Don't Tell, at the time you were dating uh, a military man, and that's kind of what added to your skyrocket into this gay cultural icon at the time, because he had to be blurred out anytime he would visit you on the show. And we had never seen anything like that on the real world before, um, because at the time, Clinton's Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy was in effect, and no one in the military was allowed to be on any TV or or really disclose their sexuality in any way um, for fear of being discharged uh, from the military. So can you talk about, you know, what, what does that feel like for you today, having lived it in that relationship, seeing it repealed, I think under, I think it was Obama. And then now with everything we're looking at with the Supreme Court, with this fascist uh, president and possibly getting another term. Do you feel like that is at stake again? Um, and uh, what does that feel like? Sean, it is. I, I feel like I've been on this roller coaster ride, you know, really starting in that moment in my life because the thing to know too is I was just really fully coming out the time that I was cast on this show. I was still pretty closeted. Only my closest friends knew. My family didn't know. So I was like just getting to really know myself and stepping into those shoes. So I didn't know a lot about the broader gay world, including what don't ask, don't tell this. Right. Okay. So, you know, the reason this ended up being such a scandal and and such an eye opener is because I don't think most of America knew what it was either. Right. And it is very easy. It was then and it is now. Most of us don't think about military service. It's something that somebody else does. Generally, uh, the poor end up in the military. So it's so easy for the rest of America to forget about what goes on in that world. Mm -hmm. So policy in in the military doesn't really affect most people's lives and they didn't think about it. None of us thought about it. Right. Um, And by the way, when I say the poor is in the military, I don't say that to mean say that in a demeaning way. I think that it is fucked up that uh, our underclass ends up being strapped for that job and the wealthy don't take part in it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that, that's a conversation for another night shot. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think <laughs> they prey on them. I, I think they absolutely prey on them in a way that's really disgusting. But yeah, we could spend a whole hour just on that. Um, so, the economics of it, when you have no yeah. other option, that's where you go. Anyhow. Exactly. Exactly. It, so, you know, so therefore, flash forward, I was cast to be on this. And at the very same simultaneous moment, I met this guy, Paul, who was in the military. Not, not intended, not something that I ever was expecting. It just kind of all happened. You know, fate works in its funny ways and didn't expect anything to become of it, but it did. And we ended up dating and we were together for eight years. But, uh, it, uh, yeah. So I went from being this clueless kid that knew nothing about this policy to becoming the face of it publicly. Right. Um, and at the time, so don't ask, don't tell essentially boiled down to, uh, it had been, it was a compromise with the Clinton administration. And up until that point, it uh, gays were not allowed in the military. So then it became okay to be in the military if you were gay, as long as you didn't talk about it. Right. <laughs> or show it or admit it or express it in any single way. It had to be kept 100% hidden. And at any point, if you were, if you were found to be gay, then you were kicked out. Right. 
Right. Um, dishonorably discharged. It's fucked up. Very fucked up. Uh, and you know, and it doesn't matter if you were brand new in the service or you, or if you were uh, a very well respected senior, you were still kicked out. Uh, but anyhow, so thing was was Paul wasn't just in the military, but he was an airborne ranger captain <laughs> which is a big deal <laughs> which didn't come across on the show because obviously they couldn't reveal that but yeah, it's interesting to hear now like that's a big fucking deal what was so funny at the time because that none of that was revealed and that is that is a big deal it is part of it is it was revealed later because we when later when he got out of the military we did a separate special with MTV news about it to teach, yeah. to go into the details and to teach people. But at the time, right, none of this was revealed. It couldn't be. Um, everything about his identity had to be kept uh, secret except for, you know, you know, this, this guy named Paul and he's blurry. Yeah. Uh, so anyhow, it was a big deal for him to take part in it too, because, okay, this guy, this guy's named Paul and he had, a very distinctive voice. So if you knew him, it didn't matter if he was blurred. Right. <laughs> you, knew you knew who it was. So it was, it was a, a, it was a big brave step for him to do that too. Yeah. It was really risky. Um, but you know, we were all like out of our minds into each other. So yeah, you did see things. <laughs> and you, you stayed together for eight years. Um, and I was, I was one of those, you know, kind of kids watching this show. You were definitely one of the first, uh, gay people that I saw on TV in a sort of positive light, because up until that point, gays were sort of a punchline. You know, we were the birdcage or Will and Grace, or we were the tragedy like Philadelphia, or, you know, it was just really limited, a really limited view of, of gay people. And so I definitely looked up to you for that. Um, and so you guys ended up breaking up after eight years. And I, I remember being sad when I heard, but also now that I'm an adult looking back on when I was your age, when you did the show, <laughs> you guys were kids. Like you were, you were babies going in, becoming the face of, you know, this national policy that must have been so difficult and so wild. And, um, how was it navigating that at such a young age? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot for anyone to carry, but it was a lot for well, essentially, yes, we were kids. He's a little older than me. Um, not too much, but yes, I was definitely a kid at this time and got to remember just coming out, just just stepping into those shoes. I was not entirely comfortable with myself in any way. And suddenly I found myself carrying this banner over these issues. And, you know, I would say it made me grow up really quickly. Yeah. Um, I felt, you know, a big part of me wanting to do this show. So you got to remember too, at this time, like, here's another different thing, uh, kids <laughs> at this time, people didn't necessarily or mostly go on to reality shows as, as a platform for fame, right. meaning like you weren't necessarily trying to turn that into any sort of career. Most of, most of these early people on reality TV, or at least, sorry, mostly I would say on the real world, that was it. You were on the real world and that was the end of it. Uh, there's a handful of people who went on and did, different uh, public careers, but mostly just f fade back in, in, into regular life. Right. So that was very different. Um, and 
Um, oh my god, Sean, I completely forgot where I was going with this. <laughs> Just the difference in uh, people becoming famous at that time, um, which is interesting because I think that, um, you know, now it's even more people go on TV, they're trying to be famous, but unless they're really good at, you know, marketing on Instagram, it really does only last for a second and they're back into irrelevance. I almost think even though it wasn't common back then, it was easier to launch off of a show like that because you had more people people's attention now there's so many reality shows it's so saturated so um, many, and and also so many of like it seems that people on reality television are mostly now not sort of f- mostly figures that anyone like it's not necessarily about any sort of talent or or positive personality trait it's generally more about like outrageousness and Traits that don't necessarily translate into the next step, if you right. get what I mean. Yep, exactly. Um, exactly. What I, where I was going with that earlier when I got off on that crazy tangent <laughs> was, so at the time it was, you know, my intention mostly of going onto the show was just to help move the needle. Yes. You know, knowing like, I, I felt like it was kind of a gift being handed to me. Mm-hmm. Um. And I felt like it, I felt like it was super scary and and risky, but I felt like it was something that needed to be done. Like I needed almost as part of my process to own it. I needed to just be as public about it as I could, but in, in doing so, hopefully helping to turn the dial yes. with where the, where our culture was. Cause our culture at this time, like again, people, it was so different from now. It's crazy how much changed in these past 20 years. Yeah, it goes fast. Um, and the page really turned quickly, uh, kind of like things accelerated from that point forward in those few years and around that time. Um, it was just sort of like a culmination of a lot of different things collided. And my experience was during that time, too. Um, I think I think a lot of that trajectory probably started with Matthew Shepard's murder. Yes. Um, which the anniversary of that just happened. And I feel like that galvanized people in a major way and and, 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 and all walks of life too. You know, I think a lot of people realize that, wow, there's a really a lot of hate and violence out there towards gay people. Yeah. Uh, you know, even people who may themselves be indifferent or even hateful themselves kind of couldn't, you couldn't avoid that, that realization. Right. And I think with gay people, it scared the shit out of us. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I remember being a kid and and learning about that. And it it coincided with me sort of, I sort of realized right around the time that you were on the show is sort of when I realized I was gay. So it was a couple years after Matthew Shepard, but it was still like MTV made a movie about it a couple years on. Then the Laramie Project came out on HBO and on, you know, in New York. And so it was like, I still was learning about it in sort of those high school years. And it was traumatizing to sort of learn about that and know that I'm going into to a world now, not only that is uh, where I'm different, but that it's dangerous. It can be dangerous. And so I think that was a really important cultural moment uh, for all of us. It it was clear that it was very dangerous to be out. Um, So, you know, that was in the back of my head when I I signed up to do this. (laughs) That was a huge thing in my head. I knew this was going to be come with a level of risk. Like it was not safe to be out. Right. You know, you could go to a big city and 
generally get, get go about your business and not be bothered. But if you, you know, you did not do that and you didn't show yourself, you didn't reveal yourself in most places. Right. Exactly. Uh, it wasn't safe. It just was not safe. And that's why like gay bars at that time were incredibly important because it was once oftentimes the only place you could go to and be safe. Right. Absolutely. Um, I promise you we wouldn't talk about real world forever because <laughs> I know that you've talked about it your whole life. But I just want to say too, like the catapult into fame that happened for you after that was intense. You were, I, I, I'm not exaggerating saying you were probably the most famous gay man of the year 2000 by far. You were on the cover of Out Magazine, Advocate Magazine, TV Guide. Um, you were doing fashion shows, fashion shoots, including one with Beyonce. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so, by the way, all of that nonsense, it was loads of fun and stuff that that was definitely brought about from this experience. Um, that was a very interesting year. <laughs> uh, there was, there was, there was a, a, a piece in the New Yorker. I wish I could get my hands on a copy of this. I lost all my media years ago, I think in a basement flood. <laughs> but wow. it, it was, it was a piece that came out in the summer. I think, I think it was probably the summer right after the show started to air. So 2000, yeah. I guess that was. Yeah. Uh, and so the funny thing was, was this whole piece was about up and coming entertainers. <laughs> okay, so like, here I am, this kid that just came off this reality show, uh, you know, docu-series. I don't even know what the hell's happening. And then there were all of these other different entertainers from different walks of life. Like there was a, there was, you know, there were musicians, there was a magician, actors, actresses. And one of them was Beyonce, you know, this yeah. like up and coming entertainer. I guess Destiny's Child had success by that point yes. and yep. she was probably starting to break off on her own. Yep. So we were all in this photo shoot together. <laughs> and That's you know, so we were like hanging out in the meatpacking district which at this point the meatpacking district was still pretty fucking gritty. Yep. Uh, you know, like taking pictures in all these sexy glamorous clothes walking in gritty alleys and uh there was there was uh, a shot where she and I are like sitting in the back of a car hanging out, you know, and I'm fucking completely out of my mind. <laughs> oh my God. This is such a joke. This, this is a, like an incredible entertainer and she was freaking gorgeous. And I didn't even realize at the time, but she was, I'm pretty sure she's younger. She's younger than me by a few years. Okay. But she's so stunning that I thought she was probably, you know, a good five years older than me. Yeah. I'm just this like kid in awe acting all <laughs> stupid. But and then she turns to me and goes, and it was very cute because she turns to me and goes, oh, my God, this is so cool. I know who you are. And I was like, are you kidding me? I, I said, to her, are you kidding me? I know who you are. <laughs> That is so wild. Well, I'm sure that they were watching Real World on the tour bus because that's totally. what we all did. There was no Instagram. There was no any of that. So that that's is so right. wild. On in the background. You're totally right. That is so, so wild. So Such a big part of the show, too, So for someone. So that, this is the other thing about the Real World is it drew in all walks of life watching it, too, because... Yeah. It always had a different cast member representing a different walk of life. Yes. There was that story and then the, the interactions. And there was always a racial line. So, of course, like, you know, Beyonce was watching it probably very much for that partly. Right. 
Um, and, uh, and of course David was on my season and I think everybody followed that story, uh, over his music. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, the thing besides you and Paul, which was a huge storyline, your season had a wild cast of characters, like David's storyline with his come on, be my baby tonight. Like it crazy. Like, Melissa was, was hysterical. Uh, Julie was the Mormon. Like it, it was really an iconic season, even aside from you, which is it, it just is it's pop culture history. <laughs> I will be walking down the street to this day and I will suddenly hear that damn song being sang by somebody. <laughs> because when they, if someone recognizes me, that's the first thing that pops in their head is that song. <laughs> that is hysterical and it makes my heart full to know that people are trolling you by singing David's song to you. <laughs> I actually just figured out what he's up to uh, now, which is even more outrageous. What does he do now? I invite you to Google. Um, God love him. He's actually the one that I have not spoken to since then. Um, and no animosity, just, you know, everybody goes their separate ways. But uh, he's got so – I, I I haven't actually viewed it, but he's got a, a sexy YouTube uh, chef show. <laughs> oh, my God. That uh, is wild. I invite I, you Check it out. I, I think his name is Tokyo. That. Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Wow. So he's using a pseudonym. That's wild. Um, all right. So moving on, because I won't bog you down with, with, we will come back to real world if we have time, but I want to get to all the other great stuff that I want to talk about. So on a serious note, recently you found out that you were HIV positive. And so that's kind of why we're here and why you are putting yourself back into the media as of late to sort of be an advocate for awareness, um, for you equals you. Uh, what was finding out about your diagnosis like? Can you walk us through that? Because I think as a gay man, it's something that we all have in the back of our mind at all times. Yes, thanks, Sean. And because this this really is why we're here talking. Um, I, I don't generally enjoy talking about 20 years ago all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> but let's be real. It's how we got here, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so it wasn't actually recently that I was diagnosed, um, that actually happened several years ago, but it's only recently in the past couple of years, it was actually exactly two years ago that I first public publicly spoke about it. It took me a few years of evolution to, you know, go through this grieving process. Right. I think that's what everybody should understand is that. This diagnosis is a grieving process. You grieve like this loss and innocence of your former healthy self. And you go through a crazy psychological ride of one processing the bias and feelings about HIV and HIV positive people that we all have in our heads. We all have a script running in our head about everything. But, you know, right. HIV, like what does that mean to you if you hear that? It makes a lot of people recoil. It makes a lot of people fearful. Some people, it doesn't bother them at all because it really matters, I think, on your age, the time you've lived in, um, the experiences you've had, and, you know, and, and the, the, the moralizing you've had. Right. 
um, it carries this crazy stigma of being, uh, it's a moral stigma of being something, a mark that, that denotes someone who has, uh, you know, low morals. They did something bad. Ultimately, they, you know, it's the belief they did something bad to deserve this punishment. Right. Yep. Um, the only reason you get HIV is because you're doing something bad. Right. Um, which is total bullshit. But mm-hmm. what I had to face when I got diagnosed was that I had that bullshit script honestly had been running in the back of my head. Like whether I was actively conscious of it or not, which I really wasn't so much. The truth is, is I had a lot of bias about it and I had a lot of negative feelings about it. So I have to go on this long journey, which I think a lot of people do to go from having these really fucked up thoughts to realizing it's part of nature. It's biology. It's a disease. Um, what it's really about is uh, there was a time when it was associated with gays and gays were associated with everything negative. Mm-hmm. And that's what I had to untangle. Right. It's like right. going back to untangle all over again and digging those old skeletons out of the closet too. The gay is not some curse, something to be ashamed of. Right. It's about shame. It is about shame. And- Letting go of that shame is difficult and a lot of people are hanging on to that shame a lot of people are hanging on to crazy shame in this gay world you know and it's a whole other level to to have to face it and let go of that shit that level of shame um but you know what i then came to is this realization once i came to peace with it myself that it didn't feel right not to be openly honest about it to help change this script too, because we're in this really strange time now where medicine has advanced so much. So the population of this country is now split in, in not just this country, but this world, it's split into two, two sides of people, people who think who are often the moralizers too, that this is something that, you know, you are going to die from. It is your punishment and you're going to die some awful death. Right. Uh, as was actually the case back in the day. If you got it, you died generally. Like most, I don't know the exact number, but generally people did not live eventually. Yeah. Um, now medicine has advanced so far. It's fucking amazing. For me, for example, I take one little pill a day, minimal side effect, and I generally carry on with my life and I'm healthy and I, and I, I'm undetectable. And what that means is you cannot transmit HIV. Right. Something that most people are still not grasping. Right. Exactly. And I think that part of the problem with that is that uh, it, it's the shame that you talked about and the trauma that you talked about. And I think that in our community, it's difficult to let go of our preconceived notions about HIV that are buried in that shame that we're carrying because I think a lot of it is subconscious for for gays. I think that we don't access it on the surface because we may have a certain level of education around this because it's a part of our community because of the the reputation this disease had early on. So we may have a, a higher education about it but then it's putting that education into a practical practice. Um, so it it's almost like there's a disconnect between what we know about it and then how we actually treat it. Does that make sense at all? Absolutely. And so let me add to that. 
So the real epidemic in the gay community right now, and I, I want everybody to hear this loud and clear, the real epidemic is shame. Right. The general population in the gay community is saturated with shame, and it drives so many people's minds and behaviors, including the idea that many gay men are constantly seeking perfection in mm-hmm. whatever they do and touch and connect with which is really a tool that's being used to mask that freaking shame that they're carrying around like a giant load of bags. And so, for instance, then HIV is easily seen as not perfect, a stain. And it, that drives a lot of the behavior that uh, drives even people who are informed, it still repels them from people with HIV. Right. It's like wearing a big fat A. Right. So, and, you know, and that in this in this epidemic of shame, that's just, you know, one example of the negativity that comes out of it. Um, you know, a lot of it, it drives a lot of self-destruction, self-destructive habits. You name it. Yeah. We could have a whole other <laughs> episode and talk about that. We could do a mini series. <laughs> I'll have you back on. Um, but uh what how have you gotten through that part of it how i know that you said it was a few years ago now since your diagnosis what did you do to work through that probably therapy but like is there something that you can pass on to somebody that may be listening that has a friend or is uh hiv positive themselves that are working through that shame or hiv negative that just like all of us in the gay community we're carrying this sort of trauma around this disease, whether we have it or not, it's just all of the messaging we've received. Is there something that you've learned that you can pass on that you think may help all of us process this in a way and move forward? Yes. And thanks for asking. I mean, so it's, it's not an easy solution. There's not a one-stop shop here. Mm -hmm. It was and it, and it is an ongoing process. Um, not, you know, not to say like, ah, we flipped that page entirely. Right. Because what it really boils down to is you have to, you have to go to your core and you have to build yourself solid on solid foundations within yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and to build yourself solidly from within requires minimally seeking outside Um, you know, a lot of people get a lot of guys out there are really, really caught up in seeking, uh, validation externally. And the more you seek validation externally, the shakier your foundations. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have solid foundations, this is going to be a giant heavy A that's going to weigh your neck down. Yeah. Um, so, you know, building that core foundation of being able to validate yourself, like that is a hard process, but that takes a ton of honesty with yourself. It takes a lot of time and patience and it's ongoing. Um, but it, it, it is being conscious of it first and foremost, being self-aware. Um, you know, start checking yourself. How many times are you posting selfies of yourself? with your shirt off or, you know, doing whatever you're doing for attention. Like what's that really about? Right. Get a dopamine hit that you're getting because you need that validation. Mm-hmm. Figure out how to find your own validation. And a lot of what that means is doing things that are intrinsically valuable to you, figuring out 
whatever your hobbies or passions are, exploring that and growing in that. And that's where you start to validate yourself. Again, that's not a process that happens overnight. Um, but I think that's important for everyone, all of us as a human being, but that's where it begins. Um, what helped me a lot too was step by step. I took the risk of telling people I trusted and loved bit by bit, letting it out. You know, it was a whole coming out process again and having oh, some man. of those people start to check on me regularly and like being very conscious and sensitive of like, wow, this is a, this is an intense diagnosis. And at the time I was really, 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 really sick. And it was hard because most people didn't know. So I had to pretend that I was okay. Like at work, I was pretending I was okay, but I was extremely sick. So having those friends check in on me, even if it was just like a text, like, Hey, are you okay? Do you feeling okay? Can I bring in anything? Like that meant a lot. Um, and it's always been, I've always valued when people ask me general, honest questions. Like most people are too afraid or, you know, don't want to maybe insult me by asking the wrong question, but I don't think there is a wrong question around about it. I think there's nothing wrong with being curious about it, asking questions and learning because there's so much to learn. And I don't, and I don't, I don't think it is necessarily someone's fault. They don't know a lot about this because this is, you know, it's a, it's a subject that doesn't touch everyone's life. I get it. Right. Um, so I don't necessarily think like it is, I do think it is every gay man's responsibility to be aware and informed, I will say, but I don't think it's the general populations necessarily. Right. Um, so I'm patient with people who, who don't understand, but I really value people asking questions, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. When you talk about the coming out process a second time, I think that every gay man, I would be curious to know, but I think that we all think about like, what if I contracted this and we like play it in our heads in a weird, in a weird way that like goes to this trauma. And I wondered what was it like telling your parents? Because I always think, like, if I got it, would I even tell them? Because it's so easy to stay healthy now. I feel like I would just, I, it's weird. It's a weird thing. What was that like for you? Yeah, good question. So um, I didn't tell my family right away. It was, it was exactly like coming out all over again. You know, it was something that I had to first Except in myself first, mm -hmm. it was something that I needed time to absorb and figure out how I fit into it. It was something that I need to slowly share with trusted people. It is this fear of rejection, which is some real, real hardcore stuff. Um, no one wants to be rejected ever. It's not something that humans <laughs> do well with either. And, you know, those of us who are gay, we're very used to being rejected through our lives generally and whatever communities we've been part of. Um, that's changing a lot now, but for many people, it is still the case. Come, talking about HIV is a little even more tricky because you also don't know what people's reactions are going to be. You don't know if people are going to, you know, you get every reaction of the book from, oh my God, are you going to die? <laughs> right. Oh my God, what does this mean? To, oh, right on, man. That's cool. You're, you're healthy. Really glad to hear that. Cool. Let's hang out. Yeah. And, you know, and then the other extreme, like every now and then, and the most painful reactions come from generally gays, uh, because what you're really getting is their, their latent self-hatred that comes out. But 
that you know they lash out and they attack you and how dare you get near me uh ah you were you know disgusting fuck off or even the worst part just ghosting Mm -hmm. ghosting is the worst it is fucking generally unacceptable it's trash it's people not having the balls to be a respectful adult right because you can't handle emotion and that's not okay for adults okay (laughs) absolutely he got me on a roll tonight. It's my a, parents. So I eventually told my parents way later on. And to be honest, I never wanted to talk to my parents about it. Yeah. My parents are, you know, really caught up in the cult of Southern, evangelical Southern Baptist religion. Uh, um, I think I remember that a little bit from the show. I grew up in it and it is some pretty backward shit. Yeah. Like, sorry. <laughs> so they haven't evolved over... They, oh no, they've only grown more entrenched into it. They've never, so we sort of have our own don't ask, don't tell about me being gay. They just, they don't talk about it. They don't want to talk about it. They're uncomfortable with it. They don't accept it, but you know, they want to love me, but they can only love me with that condition that we don't talk about me. Um, so, you know, as I've grown older, I've just grown more distant from them. I love them and I still, you know, I talk to them all the time. I text to my mom today, but we have a very limited relationship. Mm. In many ways, I see them as the children now. Right. Uh, And I never wanted to talk to them about this diagnosis because what's the point of that? To give them something to worry about? Right. I already know that I know in their mindset and their belief system that this is like, oh, naturally, your punishment. Uh, This is that world that preaches the idea that HIV is your punishment, which is, you know, so medieval. Right. That you're being punished with a disease because of your behavior. It's like total freaking nonsense. Uh, you know, like what's happening with COVID right now relates to HIV in so many ways, but in hyper speed, people's reaction to a new disease, people's fear, people's pointing fingers and who deserves it and who doesn't. Yeah. It's all very similar. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And And that story carries on. So my parents, you know, I eventually told because I I knew they needed to know because I went public about it. Uh, right. We, it's just another thing. We don't talk about it. Did you uh, tell them right before you went public? Is that, again, like kind of like going on the real world? <laughs> Is that sort of what triggered you you telling them? It wasn't. It was right before, but me going public actually wasn't what triggered me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of was the only way this time where as I my confidence in it grew and my confidence in owning it grew, I suddenly just, it's like I flipped a switch. I just started telling people that were in my life and that I care about left and right. And they were part of that. Mm-hmm. And then kind of letting those reins go gave me the freedom and the, and the motivation to just say, why not take this to the public? Because I feel like, I just felt like I realized at that point that I would be doing a disservice by not helping flip the script. By this point, you know, I had been with it for a few years. I, uh, you know, through dating and, and, and interacting with the gay world and, and the hetero world too, and like so many different interactions over time, you just start to realize like, oh my God, no one really talks about it anymore because it is, again, part of this, this story that's flipped with medicine is that now because of PrEP and the fact that, uh, so many people who are positive are, are undetectable. It's not being transmitted as much now. Not to say that it's not. It's still definitely being transmitted right. a lot. And more so now than actually in the recent past. Uh, because people have gotten 
to a, a place of feeling really safe with it. You know, there was a time we were all terrified of it. Terrified. I right. was psychotically terrified of it back in the day. Um, and for rightful reasons, because back then you either died or you, you know, live in some miserable life on this terrible early treatment. Right. Yep. Um, something we all really fear, but it's such a different world now where there's just that fear is gone. People don't talk about it. It's in a lot of ways, it's a non-issue. So it's like kind of going in, back in, in time again, where if you go to cities, big cities, people are generally more, um, informed about it, uh, enlightened about it. They, they know more of the facts and are more exposed to it. And I think that's a lot of what it's about. It's being exposed to people who are positive and who are honest about it. So you, you talk and you share and people learn. Right. And you know people and you realize like, oh, like your, your judgments fade. Whatever judgments you bring fade when you get to know people. Right. It's just like starting all over again with uh, people coming out and getting to know that story again. Yeah. And well, going going back to fear and COVID, how does COVID now affect people living with HIV? Because this is now such a manageable um, thing. It's more like a chronic illness than, than this terrible terminal disease that it used to be. Um, but that is because we have these great medications now that you mentioned earlier, you can take one pill and you're feeling great and you're healthy and have, you know, pretty normal life. But if people are losing their jobs now because of COVID or their insurance and maybe have limited access to that medication, um, you know, how, how do you think that's going to affect the um, positive community? Great question, Sean, because let's back up here. This is a delicate the subject that you have to handle delicately because on one hand, Relative to the past, yes, the treatment now is amazingly advanced and we live healthy lives and you do manage it like a chronic illness. Right. It's sort of like, you know, the same as if you are managing your now COVID symptoms, you may have the rest of your life <laughs> right. um, because you have brain damage. Yeah. Uh, or maybe we find out that COVID is in your body and actually keeps coming back. Right. Um, or, you know, you're managing diabetes. Mm-hmm. But, it, but on the flip side of that, it should not be downplayed how serious it is, right. the chains that you find yourself wearing because America's insurance and medical system is so fucked up. Right. You become a prisoner to our insurance system. You must have insurance. You must have good insurance. You must have it or you're going to struggle to get access to these treatments. I'm lucky because I have a good career where I have good health benefits. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you this too. I pay out my ass. I actually pay more for my health insurance than I pay for my housing. And that does not include all the extraneous bills that come from regular blood tests, maintenance, uh, doctor's visits, etc. which, you know, that is all effort and time. That is wild. Um, yeah. Like it, it is still a really serious thing that you have to really manage and stay on top of. Um, you cannot miss a day of these drugs. Right. So everyone knows just the science behind it. Um, this is like, by the way, like I didn't know, like backing up, I didn't know Jack about what truly being positive meant before I became positive myself. Um, so, you know, through a lot of research, I've learned a lot, but, um, the science behind being undetectable is because the drugs are so amazing, they wipe the virus out of your body. It is undetectable because you have 
there's no viral load to measure when they do the test. There's nothing there. Right, which is why you become undetectable. Bingo. However, uh, HIV is a tricky little virus because unlike many, it is able to move across your blood-brain barrier. So it gets in your brain. And in your brain, it sort of lays dormant as long as the, the infection is repressed with the drugs. That's why you can't miss the pills. If you miss the pills, the virus comes out of your brain, replicates in your body, and takes over again. Wow. Actually, uh, can and, and often mutates. Um, not a good thing. Coven has a lot in, in common with HIV, I've noticed. Um, I geek out and I read a lot of medical journals that come out on it. And, you know, it's very clear that it has a component of being a blood disease causing blood clotting. Right. It's very clear. It also can cross your blood brain barrier and get into your brain. That's why like a third of the cases people are having cognitive impairment. Mm. Um, scary. Like people are being really stupid with COVID right now and it's pissing me off. Yeah. <laughs> As somebody who manages a serious chronic illness, it's pissing me off how cavalier people are marching around and being about it. Yeah. Without well, having a clue what the long-term effects are going to be on people. You know? It's yeah. like, you know, okay, people, you really don't want to fuck around with this. <laughs> Cuz yeah. You don't in shoes like this where you're managing a serious illness but it happens yeah and i had covid so everything you're saying is uh is startling me now <laughs> oh well I'm, sean i'm glad you're still here with us thank you me too absolutely um i definitely thought i was gonna die i have asthma so i was like so freaked out i like covered my whole body in vicks vapo rub and it it ended up being okay but it's so it's so different for everybody I, I do too, Sean. I have asthma, so it's my fear too. And then yeah. and back to back to COVID and insurance right now and, mm. and really answering your question. So, you know, right now, yes, a lot of people are losing their health insurance, which is pure insanity. This this is like such pure proof that this market system does not work uh, during a pandemic. Um, and here we are, people who are with, with HIV, if you lose your insurance, you're fucked. Like you have to scramble to figure out how you're going to get these drugs through, you know, some sort of social support system, which everybody does not have access to. Probably most people don't have ac access to. Right. Um, I feel really horrible for a lot of people out there. These drugs are insanely expensive. We're talking three, four, five thousand and up a month mm -hmm. for these drugs, which, by the way, when you go to other countries around the world, these same fucking drugs cost a fraction of it, it because we are being raped by the system. If I could go to Canada and get my drug, I know for a fact, because the data is public, I could pay half for it if it were possible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, these, these, are, these are not because these drugs cost so much to produce, and, and, and many of them, by the way, are like way past their original production with artificial patents on them just so that they can keep charging these inflated prices that you must have insurance to have these treatments. Yeah. Have um, you ever considered moving out of the country to 
have better access to healthcare. I feel like right now, I've never thought about really moving out of the country. Like we say it a lot during election cycles. But right now I'm looking at like, if Trump wins again, I'm actually looking at getting my um, Italian citizenship and my European passport and getting the fuck out of here because it's been so bad the past four years. I don't know what the, another four could possibly be. Have you thought about that? So, uh, by the way, reality TV turned into such trash and its ultimate culmination is fucking Trump. Right. <laughs> he, is, he is human trash incarnated out of reality television. Right. Uh, we are trapped in a really fucking bad season of a reality TV show now, except we can't get out of it. And yes, if he wins again, this is all a warm up. <laughs> it's going to be really ugly. And I think a lot of us are looking at moving out of the country, but right. I, yeah, like I realistically have to think about it now because if Trump wins and Trump and they, and they get their way, those of us with pre-existing conditions are fucked. Right. We're fucked. They want to kick us off these policies so badly before Obama's uh, rules came into place. People with pre-existing conditions were screwed. Um, it was very difficult to get any coverage. And I imagine at this point, you know, just compared to how much more expensive health insurance is now versus then, probably none of us will be able to afford any policy that would be offered to us. Right. If it were. Right. So, yeah, like, I don't want to live in Canada. It's fucking cold up there. <laughs> right. I, that's why I'm like, I'm going to Europe. And I, I could I could potentially get Italian citizenship through my heritage, like my great-grandfather. But um, Well, more crazy. power to you because I think it is smart if you can do it. And I'll tell you this. I renewed my passport this summer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's in <clears> – <throat> Insane. Absolutely insane. Um, there is so much more that I still had left to ask you, but I we're, we have to wrap up shortly um, because my studio where I record this is closing for the night. Um, so maybe I'll harass you and make you come back for a second um a second episode. <laughs> um, I had fun. I would probably do it with you because we, we could, you know, one of, one of those big issues I tossed in. We can make a whole other episode. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I promised you that we would talk about the social dilemma and we could have a whole episode on that and we never got to it. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. I think I, we could do a whole episode on social media and and that rot box. Yes. Uh, I like that you really, 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 I hadn't thought much about it before, but you really get that social media and reality TV are so intertwined. Really what happened was was before everyone had reality TV to sort of just imagine themselves in. Now everyone is trying to create their own reality TV show through their social media accounts. Yes. And they're all – and so many people are, are displaying characters because I think that's what reality TV became was a lot of people just portraying characters, not actual reality. It's so bizarre. Yeah, absolutely. And we have Trump. <laughs> right. Exactly. 
All right. So just to to end us out, um, you know, what is next for you? I know you have a daughter. You're living in your Airbnb property in Vermont right now. You're kind of an expat from New York City. Um, you know, what is what's next for you? What are you reckoning with? This is my like season three question to end things. What are you reckoning with? What are you looking at as your options for the future? If we, you know, depending on the election, that'll be our, our wrap up question. Yes, pre-pandemic, I you know was living there in the city, not far from you, uh, and as soon as it hit, yes, I do. I have a four and a half year old daughter, Naya. Um, she's adopted from birth. I quickly realized that I was not going to sit in a tiny apartment, <laughs> especially with her, right. uh, in lockdown. So we came to stay at my little cabin here in Vermont, which is this tiny little humble cabin. It's not like some extravagant anything. Uh, and it normally is an Airbnb, but what went from being like, Oh, I'll stay here a couple of weeks. And like, I'm going to stay here and until next summer. Um, and I think Anyone who's making too many serious plans about next year is kidding themselves because I think <laughs> very fair point. <laughs> that shit is going to be like a hot pot boiling over, and we're all going to be possibly putting out a grease fire. Yes, or getting the hell out of the grease fire. And I think yeah. I don't know. I, I I'm not thinking too far ahead right now. <laughs> yeah, fair fair enough. Uh, Danny, this was such a thrill for me. Um, as I said, I was one of those little kids. I mean, I wasn't that little of a kid, but I was, you know, a teen watching you on that show and, and having somebody to look up to at a time when there wasn't a lot of people. So it's a, it's a thrill for me to have you on and get to have these great chats about, you know, life now, um, all of the things that we're reckoning with. I'm so psyched that you are doing well and staying healthy healthy during this craziness. Um, I will message you because I have to have you on for part two um, to dig into the social dilemma. And um, I, I just wanted, there's so many more things I want to know about you being a dad, what that's like living in uh, New York and dating now, all kinds of things I had on my list. So I will harass you to um, get back on Skype with me at some point. All right, Sean, thank you very much. Gratitude for having me on. I had a lot of fun talking to you. Absolutely. Have a great night, Danny. Thank you so much. Okay, stay safe out there and don't get COVID again. I will try my damnedest. Thank you. <laughs> Good night. Thank you for listening. If you're listening on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, I always call it iTunes, please give me five stars and write a review. It doesn't have to even be a review. You could tell me a little story in there. I don't even care, but the reviews help. And if you're listening on uh, Spotify, please subscribe. If you're listening anywhere beyond those two, thank you for listening there as well. We will talk with you next time. Good night.